Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Well, hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we are uh, on our way north. Uh, we have left the beach, and so you don't hear any surf in the in the. So you don't hear any surf in the background. Maybe a little bit of wind. It's a, a decent day, but we have traveled north, and we're north of Dallas now, and we are enjoying, about to enjoy the a new experience. Well, we're about to attend an Elder Hostel. Elder Hostel is an old organization. It's been around for many years. It was started by some professors on a college campus who thought that um, many of the field trips that they were taking their young people on would be as readily enjoyed by oldsters. And they also saw a lot of times when their college campuses were quite empty, uh, summertime or spring break, and they thought this would be uh, a good use of the location and a good use of the know-how, and Elder Hostel was begun. Originally, they always took place on a college campus uh, when school was not in session and the uh, attendees lived in dorms. Uh, as, as this organization has evolved, they have expanded their programs overseas and on cruises, and they have also started offering RV facilities for attendees in certain locations. And one of the reasons why we are attending this particular elder hostel is because that option was available. Uh, like you, we generally prefer to live in our home away from home rather than in a hotel, and we love to attend an elder hostel and learn new things while we can stay in our RV and be in familiar digs at night. So the elder hostels are a fun program for those over 55 because you will get to meet uh, fellow um, retirees and and well, fr and frankly other folks who are uh, of the right age. They take you on a Monday through Friday learning experience, and some of these are active uh, programs, and some of them are classroom type of programs, and uh, they have uh, a wide range in between. Some are sightseeing, some are craft oriented. Um, I saw some for. Uh, acapella choir singing, I saw some for glass making, um, some for all sorts of activities. If you'd like to visit their website, which is uh, a very good and, and they make it uh, very easy for you to sign up for future Elder Hostel experiences, you can go to elderhostel.org and uh, and take a look at all of the programs and I would strongly suggest that you have them send you a catalog because the printed catalog is actually very complete and if you're thinking this is a small program uh, it's not um, if you take a look at the catalog you'll find literally hundreds of elder hostels that are being offered throughout the year they're known for um, reasonable prices and a learning experience that is uh, beyond what you ordinarily would find at any community college or local uh, educational institution so you can travel around the world doing these we have found uh, this is our fifth one and we have found this to be a quite uh, interesting experience uh, overall 
It doesn't seem to matter too much what the topic is that we are, have chosen to attend because for sure you learn an awful lot from the other people who are there attending that program with you. Um, it's a given that anybody who signs up for an elder hostel loves learning and is an interesting person. So we have learned as much at the dinner table uh, talking to our fellow attendees as we have at the elder hostels themselves. And these days, if you don't want to go in an RV, they generally are not in a dorm. Uh, they choose moderately priced hotel rooms for you to attend. Or in our case, we get to stay in the RV. And there are not too many RV uh, types of elder hostels, but you can do a search on their database against RV. And we have done two RV ones now, and both of them have been here in Texas, which is kind of a surprise to us. But I expect as more and more baby boomers do the RV thing that uh, more of these will be available. It saves you a few dollars off the standard price because they're not paying for the hotel room, but they do include the same three meals a day and all of the learning opportunities that are afforded to the regular attendees. Most people drive in, and of course we drive in and stay in our RV. North has been uh, something of a, an adventure. As uh, befits the time of year, it can be very volatile in terms of weather, and we certainly have experienced some interesting weather. We, as the last episode showed you, we were on the beach and uh, enjoying very nice, excellent weather as we took advantage of the, the beach experience. But we started driving north, and about halfway to Dallas, um, the temperature dropped 40 degrees. This was in the forecast, but you could hardly believe it, so we went from 85 to 45. And then as we kept driving, um, a mist started, and uh, as the temperature continued to go down, the mist froze to our windshield, froze to our mirrors, and of course also froze to the road. And being from the north, we are used to such conditions, but clearly uh, the state of Texas is not well prepared to deal with this, neither the state itself or the drivers. So uh, we're used to um, freezing temperatures. The salt trucks come out and sprinkle the salt around, so if there's a mist or a rain, uh, it never freezes. It just um, dissipates as the trucks drive over it. But in Texas, apparently, the solution to this problem is to drive as fast as always and to sprinkle salt around and sand around. And the sand is very helpful for the first few vehicles that drive over it, but after that, it gets sprayed to the side of the road, and the road is as slick as always. So as we prepared to uh, go to Dallas, uh, the forecast on the TV mentioned the fact that there had been over 2,000 accidents that weekend, and we decided to... Um, stop at a campground on the south side of Dallas and wait out the ice storm. So. We are lucky enough to have a thermometer in the truck as we're, as we're towing, and a couple of times we've had to put it to good use and to watch the rain come down, but then suddenly realize that the temperature is 31 and then 30. Makes you realize that you better do something pretty quick. As we try to plan enough time between events that we have schedule for the road we we were able to pull over and find a campground and stop for the night and as a, as a matter of fact we stopped for about more than well about 24 hours I guess uh, we didn't leave until early the next afternoon and uh, as she said with all of these accidents around we were quite happy that uh, we were snug in our in our RV using up tons of propane and uh, of course propane is one of those problems that you <laughs> that you could have <laughs> uh, I don't know um, 
RVs, I guess, are not uh, overly well insulated, just step in and, and fill up the old tanks. Uh, we get about uh, three cold nights on a tank. And these days that's costing about mm, between 15 and $20 to fill up. So that's one of those expenses that uh, you always have to consider. And of course it varies greatly where we fill up. Uh, sometimes we find a good price in campgrounds. Uh, the campground where we spent a month, where many people stay put, they even had a propane wagon that came around and uh, serviced you on site. Uh, generally, uh, Ken has to remove our tank and take it somewhere, and sometimes in more rural communities you'll find a local propane dealer that has a good price. So it varies greatly, but it's certainly something that you need to keep an eye on um, or you can get very cold. Uh, the other thing we like to do, uh, depending on the campground we're at, is to run an electric heater. Uh, if you're at a campground for a short length of time, less than a week, generally all the electricity you can use is built into your campground uh, fee, and then it makes more sense to heat your RV as much as possible with their electricity rather than with your propane. Uh, but certainly during the ice storm weather, we were running both of them fairly enthusiastically. Not that the furnace wouldn't keep up, but... Uh, it's just that the furnace is fairly loud and it seems to cycle quite widely. Now this is something that uh, you might want to consider uh, and that is replacing the thermostat. I have done that with a digital thermostat so that it would be accurate and keep uh, much more consistent temperatures inside the RV. Um, I found the instructions on how to do this on the web and I'll try to post those in the show notes. But it only applies probably to to our version of an RV, but I'm sure you can find the ones for you. Um, you know, most of the RV manufacturers have some sort of a message board, and you can uh, find out all sorts of great information on that message board. <coughs> and uh, so I replaced our thermostat with a digital one, which I bought at Walmart, uh, for about $15. You know, the, the little mechanical spring, bimetal spring one, just didn't do a very good job. Um, it was difficult to adjust the appropriate temperature so that you knew what temperature it was set at, and it was also difficult because uh, it had even wider swings in the temperature. Uh, we find the electric uh, seems to work a little bit better and is uh, somewhat quieter. So we, as she, and, and because it's usually included in the price of the campground, uh, the electricity, we feel free to use it. And we also turn the electric on in the hot water heater and in any place else we can find to use the electricity we do that so I hope that no campground owners are listening to this although I'm sure this is a fairly common strategy <laughs> anyway so in the cold weather we feel kind of uh, locked up and uh, you know in 300 square feet or 325 square feet which we have uh, Staying any length of time can kind of get to the, the old cabin fever. So we like to live out of our RV as much as possible. And uh, although it's uh, decent sized with uh, three slides and 32 feet and things, it does get a, a little bit uh, confining after a, after a while. Do you find that too? Uh, definitely, although I'm also surprised by how little I miss or need all the things that I left at home in my much bigger living space. Uh, I, I don't feel ready to be a full-timer, as many people do, uh, because there are things, mementos and things that I can't quite part with, yet, at least not in this part of my life. Uh, and it's nice to have a home base to return to and friends and family that um, are there all the time. But uh, by and large, this living space space has been quite comfortable and um, we can sometimes go to separate ends of the RV and both do our own thing and uh, it 
it is big enough for all the things that you really need. It's kind of amazing. And uh, in, in this same vein, um, we recently sold our major house uh, that we had for quite a while uh, during our working life, and we moved into a Sun City type of operation. And uh, we felt that this was a good move for us, and you might also. These are called active adult communities, and uh, usually for those over 55. And by going to an active adult community, um, not only did we reduce the amount of land that we owned, but we also uh, gave uh, we also relinquished the responsibility for outside maintenance and uh, that to us was uh, very important because we like to be able to pick up hook up the RV and take off uh, whenever we feel like it and although I don't mind cutting grass and shoveling snow and that sort of stuff you always had to find somebody to do those things when you uh, left our other houses and so you always felt like you were imposing. So now we pay a monthly fee to the Homeowners Association and all of the outside maintenance uh, projects are all taken care of. We do live in a standalone home still and it's a decent size, over 2,000 square feet, which to us is uh, not really much of a downsize considering that we have a full basement too. So we don't feel like we are living um, in a in a small apartment type of living quarters like we do in the, in the RV, but uh, at the same time it offers us the, the benefits of being able to leave on a moment's notice and, and take advantage of some of the things that we weren't able to do as a, a working couple. And another advantage is, is that this community is gated and when you leave your home for a long period of time it might be a little safer if not just anybody can come in, although you never know. Um, if you are looking at gated communities though, one thing that I wish our community had is a place to store your RV. Uh, this isn't common, but we know some places do have this as an offering and for us as a community we have uh, rules and regs and we're not allowed to park our RV near our home for more than 24 hours. We're lucky that we have a fairly good driveway that our, our rig barely fits into. Uh, some people don't even have that. Uh, but it forces us to be incredibly well organized and run in and out of the house madly for those 24 hours with the piles of all the things that we've accumulated that we want to take. And it would be nice to um, have the RV close by when Ken wants to do um, a renovation or an installation of some new piece of technology. Uh, so storage is an issue that you want to think about if you're not going to be in your RV full-time. And then to all you couples out there who are currently RVing or thinking of RVing, there are two strategies, and Ken does one and Martha does the other. <laughs> so what do you consider most appropriate here? Now, my strategy is to have duplicates of everything so that the RV is always ready to go on a moment's notice. I would hardly have to bring it home. Uh, and Martha's strategy is... Well, that's not quite fair. Um, inevitably, whenever we leave home, we have to stop at Radio Shack because Ken has forgotten a lot of his technology things that he apparently does not have duplicates of. I find having duplicates to be incredibly wasteful, and I only buy what I need, and I need what I need, and I need it when I'm at home, and I need it when I'm on the road. Uh, in particular, I'm talking about clothing and shoes. Um, I do have a, a kitchen that's pretty well set in the RV um, that I don't have to take in and out of the kitchen and at home. But 
but still a lot of foodstuffs have to be hauled back and forth and um, I like to have everything where I am so that I remember where everything is. When I try to leave some stuff behind then I forget what I had there and what I have in the house and I bring two of some things and none of other things. Perhaps it's a function of old age but I prefer to have all my stuff with me. Now for me it's kind of like Christmas because I open the closet and all this new stuff that I haven't worn in months is right there. My sh- new f- pairs of shoes, the underwear is fresh and crisp in the drawer, and no, nothing had to be done because it was all there uh, waiting for me to, to start traveling again. And, of course, when I get home, I haven't been wearing that stuff, and I won't be wearing it again until we go back to the RV. So it, my stuff at home is all fresh and, and excitingly new, and I can look my stunning best. So what do you think? Why don't you give us an e- drop us an email at navigator at rvnavigator.com and let us know how you work these strategies between husbands and wives. Let's talk a little bit about geocaching. Have you thought about geocaching? Um, geocaching is uh, kind of like a scavenger hunt in that uh, people have hidden treasures. Now, don't think big money, but just think small things. They've hidden treasures uh, in various locations in their local community, and they record the GPS coordinates, the, the specific latitude and longitude where they have buried the treasure, or not buried necessarily, but hidden the treasure, and then they post these on geocaching.com website, and other people go and find them. And uh, it's quite an exciting event. I'd never heard of geocaching before, being the non-techie member of the family, uh, but it's a quite fascinating concept. For those of you who don't know any more about it than I didn't know any more about it, um, uh, GPSs uh, work off of the satellites that are overhead and triangulate to determine exactly where you are. So we have a GPS in our car that we use to make sure we know where we're going when we're on the road. And uh, when we go on this website, it gives the coordinates of a hidden treasure and we put the coordinates in the GPS in our car and drive as close to it as is possible to drive with our car. Then um, Ken also has a handheld GPS, which we also enter the coordinates into for those final uh, steps to the field or the picnic bench or under the tree or wherever they happen to have hidden the little treasure. Um, Inside each geocache is a little logbook where you sign um, your username and the date that you found the cache and uh, the the trinkets inside, uh, generally the concept is you leave one, you take one, although you don't have to. There are also some geocaches that are virtual, which means there isn't um, a hidden treasure box, but there's some object that you need to um, recognize or notice or learn something from. And then when you go home at night, you go back on the geocaching website and log in that you found the object. Um, In the case of a virtual geocache, there's usually some question that you have to answer or a date you have to know or something like that. And that's your way of proving that you have visited the cache. 
Um, I thought this was a little too techy for me, but I've enjoyed the thrill of finding things and that it's gotten us out into nooks and crannies of the places where we've been that we would never have seen otherwise. Um, when we were in southern Texas, um, many of the caches were hidden in places where people were bird watching, and it really tickled me when we would come roaring down the boardwalk with our GPS in our hand and the bird watchers' heads would whip around and they'd say to us, well, where are your binoculars? And we would say we don't need them for what we're doing. And uh, we would explain our strange hobby to them and they would explain their strange hobby to us and uh, everybody learned on both sides. It was a lot of fun. So what you need to do to start geocaching is you do have to have a handheld GPS. Uh, and these are easily purchased for these days less than $100. And you go to the website and you would enter in the exact latitude and longitude where the treasure is hidden. And then you use that to navigate. Uh, it keeps telling you how far you are away from the cache. And, and of course, you do searches for caches based on zip code and you type in your local zip code and it will tell you that you are that there's a cache within three or four miles or a mile you can easily determine uh, the radius of caches that you'd like to check out. Um, caches must be placed by local people. And when, that's that's uh, something I was a little surprised at, but uh, actually find to be good because local people know where uh, places that are kind of interesting but out of the way uh, that, that outsiders might like to visit, and uh, so they place the caches there. Now, the caches are usually in some sort of a waterproof container uh, because obviously they're out in the elements, and they are, well, I want to say hidden, but they are placed, uh, and they give you a clue or two usually, and in most cases we've been able to spot them. Usually they're in a Rubbermaid container or a ammo box, or some of them are in very small containers. We've seen them in bottles, in um, pill bottles, and all sorts of other things, uh, depending on where they have to hide it. In urban caches, they have a more difficult time hiding them than in the uh, the rural areas. Uh, we've been primarily in rural areas, so that the caches that we found have been in decent-sized containers so that you kind of just move the bushes around and stuff, and you and you see it. Because the, the, the GPS will get you within 10 feet, and that's one of the amazing things. It wasn't until 2001 that uh, President Clinton took the security off of the GPS system so that uh, us civilians could have very accurate navigation using GPSs. Another time we'll talk about the, the GPS we use in the car, uh, and that's a much more practical use of a GPS because it gives us navigation. But this, uh, the handheld GPS, um, will get you right, is just as accurate as any um, GPS, and it will get you right to the cache if you just follow its directions. And uh, it keeps telling you to go north, 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 and then you just uh, eventually will get to the location of the cache. And as she said, we found many interesting things about caches that that uh, we wouldn't otherwise have seen in, in the local vicinity. And if you're wondering, is there a cache in your neighborhood, you can bet that there is because we found that uh, there are over 230,000 caches stashed throughout the world. And, of course, the United States would have by far the most caches 
of any place else, but it is a worldwide sport, and you can probably find a cache within a few miles of your home. I typed in our local zip code and found that there were, surprisingly, 25 or 30 within uh, easy distance of our house. Uh, not walking distance, certainly, but within 5 or 10 miles of our house, and, and that's pretty amazing. And uh, we're now revved up to put our uh, to do our first cash when we get home and they make it so that uh, only locals do place the caches so that uh, they can be maintained because you go on the web and you log your caches which is fun so it has a database that keeps track of where all of your caches you found are and where the ones that you placed are and then of course you get to read the comments of those people who have visited your cache so you can see uh, the kind of the progress of your cache and, and uh, as a placer of caches that would be quite exciting too to see that people are actually using it and that they have comments and and uh, they can send you an email if they want to uh, and if it's and if it needs to be redone uh, the log gets full or the <laughs> the container starts to leak you can go out and uh, and fix it so uh, with that uh, we will take it back and uh, and start another episode next week and we're hoping that you're having a good time on the road if you're not on the road i hope that you get on the road soon this is ken your rv navigator reminding you to send us an email or to visit our website at rvnavigator.com and the email is navigator n-a-v-i-g-a-t-o-r at rvnavigator.com and we will be seeing you just as soon as we get back on the road Talk to you soon. Goodbye for now.